Hi, and welcome to Standard Precautions and Beyond, Conversations in Infection Prevention and Control, a podcast from the Alabama Regional Center for Infection Prevention and Control Training and Technical Assistance Center, or ARC-IPC. My name is Elena Kidd, and I'm a program director at the University of Alabama at Birmingham School of Public Health. During the COVID-19 pandemic, many of us have become hypervigilant when it comes to disinfecting and sanitizing items around our workspace, homes, schools, and within the healthcare setting. Today, we welcome back Dr. Ziad Kazi, Professor of Emergency Medicine and Director of the International Fellowship in Medical Toxicology at Emory University and Associate Medical Director of the Southern Regional Disaster Response System to discuss the use and potential safety risk of two other methods for killing the viruses like SARS-CoV-2, UV light and hand sanitizers. So thank you so much for joining us again, Dr. Kazi. Thanks for having me. First, I want to talk about ultraviolet light, or UV light, and in particular, UVC devices. Just to give listeners a little background information on this topic, the most common and strongest source of UV light is the sun, which produces three main types of UV rays, UVA, UVB, and UVC. UVC light has the shortest wavelength and carries the most energy and can therefore be the most damaging type of UV light. Fortunately for us, UVC doesn't reach the Earth's surface because it's blocked by the ozone layer in the atmosphere. The only way humans can be exposed to UVC radiation is from an artificial source. Enter UVC devices like lamps and wands that expose UVC light across items and surfaces to disinfect against different types of viruses and bacteria. The use of UV and UVC light to kill viruses and other microorganisms is nothing new. These forms of radiation have actually been used in hospitals, laboratories, and businesses for years before the COVID-19 pandemic. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has led to an increased production of consumer-facing devices that may pose a danger to users if used improperly. So Dr. Kazi, the first question I have for you is what does the research tell us about the effectiveness of using UV light and UVC devices in killing the coronavirus and other microorganisms? Is it as effective as chemicals, like some of the chemicals we have talked about previously in podcasts and disinfecting objects and surfaces? Thanks for this uh, useful introduction, Elena, Uh, making my life a little bit easier uh, to explain some of the uh, safety issues around UVC light. Uh, UVC emitting devices certainly are able to uh, disrupt the genetic material of viruses. So this is how it works. And this is not something that was uh, discovered during the COVID-19 pandemic. This is uh, known for decades and used for bacteria and viruses. So uh, the mechanism is really damaging the genetic material like the DNA and RNA of viruses, for example, like influenza and SARS-CoV-2. Now, uh, as you said, you mentioned that UVC has a uh, higher energy than other types of UV uh, light. And uh, that Uh, brings us to talk about the wavelength of this UV emitting device. And the wavelength that is emitted is important to consider because we know that a wavelength between 200 and 280 nanometers, that's very small, is able to uh, damage the DNA and RNA of viruses like SARS-CoV-2. So uh, when you uh, wonder whether a UVC emitting device is effective You have to consider, of course, the wavelength that this specific device is emitting, and it has to be between 200 and 280 nanometers. 
also you want to uh, consider how long you have placed this uh, item you are trying to disinfect under the um, exposure of the uh, emitting device. So these are two important factors to consider when you're assessing effectiveness, duration and wavelength. And so you mentioned that they're effective, but are there any safety concerns in using UV light and UVC devices to disinfect objects? And are some products safer than others? So, you know, there's high-end commercial grade products used in hospitals and businesses versus consumer products like UVC wands or lamps that people may use in their homes. I think the best way to answer your question here is to think a little bit about potential uh, safety issues with UVC uh, light in general, right? And you mentioned how they are blocked by our ozone layer and then do not reach uh, the earth. Um, it's important to, uh, to think about the way you use these devices. So if you are using this UVC emitting device in a room that is not occupied or a space that is not occupied by anyone, then they are very safe because basically they are irradiating the space. Any virus that is present in that space is potentially inactivated by the effect of the UV light. The issue happens if you enter that space. Remember, this device may be uh, on and you are not aware of that and you enter the space and then you are at that point exposed to the UVC light. And if you stay in that space for a long period of time, then you can potentially get a more severe exposure because the dose you receive, the damage that you get in that space is going to depend partially on the duration of your exposure. So that's one of the main issues with using these UVC emitting devices is making sure that uh, the public doesn't inadvertently become exposed to this type of radiation. So uh, as long as the space is unoccupied, they are safe. I think you run into problems when that rule is broken. Not every device also is uh, ideal for using a UVC emitting device. If you have the uh, items that you are trying to disinfect that are irregular in their surface, say for example, the way they are shaped creates some areas that are um, in the shade away from the actual direct exposure to the UV radiation. In that case, that area in the shade will not be affected. And if you have a virus in that area, the virus will survive the inactivation process. And that's something important to remember when you think about what you are trying to uh, disinfect. Also, of course, if you have a lot of material uh, like debris or material that is overlaying the virus, they can also shield the virus from the inactivation by the radiation. So uh, that's another uh, factor to consider when you are assessing the appropriateness of using such a device to disinfect an item, a device, or a surface. So it sounds like from what you're saying, they're not inherently dangerous. It's just how people use them that can make them dangerous or that can cause some safety concerns. That is correct. And you have to, again, add to it uh, additional consideration about the duration of this exposure. The wavelength of the specific UV emitting device is also important. Maybe a little bit outside the scope of this uh, podcast, but uh, for example, the wavelengths of 200 nanometer, which is thought to be better tolerated and safer than the other wavelengths, has been recently shown in some studies 
to inactivate the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So potentially, you could select a device that emits a 220 nanometer wavelength of UVC, which will still be effective against SARS-CoV-2 and less um, and less uh, less dangerous, if I may say. Maybe dangerous is a very strong word. Uh, will have a better safety profile than the other UVC wavelengths devices. So the wavelength is important. The duration of exposure is important. The organ or body body part, the body part that is exposed in this scenario. So are you exposing the eye? Are you exposing the lens of the eye, which can be a problem? Is it uh, an exposure to the skin? And how long you expose the skin? Was it was the skin uh, bare and not uh, covered? Um, these are the type of uh, uh, considerations that you must undergo when assessing safety and health effects of exposure to this UVC light, of course, inadvertently. And so what are some of the things that people can do to keep themselves safe when using EVC or UV lights? Um, so what are some of the do's and don'ts in using these items? I think the, the first do is to really um, read the label for proper, proper use, how to use them safely, the duration of, uh, of use, exposure that is necessary to inactivate the virus, uh, what safety precautions you should undergo, depending on the device. Is this device that is contained where you actually place the item inside and there's little radiation outside the device? Or is this something that you're hanging in a ceiling? Uh, as you said, some spaces are used that way uh, or, or disinfected that way with a UV light that is turned on at night when no one's there to disinfect the entire space. Uh, considering, you know, uh, your UVC filtering eyeglasses, uh, protect you if you're using those for example that protects your eye potentially um, and uh, and then just you know knowing all of these you know can take some effort on the consumer's part so really remembering to read the label and follow the label instructions is probably the best thing you can recommend to the public you know people like to use these devices because they do have some advantages uh, compared to chemicals you know chemicals you know come with their own uh, disadvantages as well, as, you, as we have discussed in previous podcasts, you know, you have potential production of uh, toxic byproducts. There is a chemical residue on the surface that can expose the public afterwards. You know, remember, the UVC does not leave any residue. You know, the UVC inactivates the virus and then the device doesn't have any chemical residue on it that can expose people to chemicals. Uh, it's not supposed to exacerbate asthma or other respiratory conditions, etc. However, again, uh, like some disinfecting chemicals, it can increase potentially uh, the risk of cancer. Uh, UVC light per se also ex overexposure and prolonged exposure to UVC, UVC light can lead to skin cancer, as we all know. And that's why we are concerned about UV in general and their effect on the skin. So um, um, there are advantages to using these devices, but also disadvantages. And the way we navigate through this somewhat complex um, environment is by reading the label, following the instructions, and always getting more information from uh, renowned resources, trust, trustworthy resources like the EP, Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, and the CDC. So that brings me to my next question is, does the EPA or FDA regulate these tools or devices that use UV light? The EPA does uh, regulate them when they are being used as a disinfectant method. So if it's not being used that way, they don't. But if it is, it falls under the pesticide rule. So it is regulated by the EPA. Um, so I hope that that kind of answers your question. 
For more information, you should probably look at the EPA website where they have specific document just on that about where do these devices fall in terms of regulatory uh, practices. So another product that has taken off in terms of use since the COVID-19 pandemic started is hand sanitizer. And there are now hand sanitizer stations all over the workplace and hospitals and businesses. I know personally, I have hand sanitizer at work, in my purse, in my car, at home. And I know many people have gotten into the habit of frequently using hand sanitizer whenever they see a station. Can you remind listeners what characteristics does a hand sanitizer need to have to be effective in killing the coronavirus? So the hand sanitizers um, are going to sanitize your hand, basically. That's the purpose of these uh, these products. And um, they are made for use uh, on our hands and are preferred, of course, uh, to be used on our hands compared with disinfectants that we've discussed before. So that's the first important thing to remember. So, you know, you're not supposed to clean your hands with bleach. You're not supposed to clean your hands with quaternary ammonium compounds. You're not supposed to clean your hands with hydrogen peroxide. This is what we've discussed before in previous podcasts. This is why you have these alcohol-based hand sanitizers that can be applied safely or relatively safely or safer than these other chemicals we just mentioned. And the key here is that they are alcohol-based. So they have to have a certain uh, amount of uh, alcohol in them, preferably ethanol or isopropyl, uh, isopropyl alcohol or isopropanol. Isopropanol is often referred to as rubbing alcohol uh, in, in, in the lay media. So the rubbing alcohol or isopropanol and ethanol are the two um, uh, permissible alcohols in these products. And they have to have a specific amount to be effective. And the minimum amount that, is, uh, that you should have in these products is 60% in concentration. So 60% concentration is the minimum concentration of these ethanols, ethanol and isopropyl alcohol in these products. You add to it also some additional products like uh, a denaturant. A denaturant is really a chemical that makes the whole product taste awful. And it's meant, uh, meant on purpose, added on purpose to uh, dissuade or uh, discourage people that have alcohol use problems from drinking these products uh, if they're trying to get intoxicated. It also helps children that potentially are, uh, you know, inadvertently drinking this uh, product stop because it tastes so bitter or so bad. So denaturants are another component of these. Of course, because of the, ri- the rise in the demand during the pandemic, we needed to have more manufacturers uh, produce these so we can make them available for the public. As you said, people were using them everywhere. And therefore, uh, we had to uh, rely on people that don't make these products on a usual basis start manufacturing these. We're also importing some from outside the U.S. And that led to some problems that we can talk about in, uh, later on in the podcast. Yeah. And so you, you mentioned that alcohol, a certain percentage of the alcohol is needed 60%. But what about some of those green hand, hand sanitizers? Those those hand sanitizers that are plant-based. Are those as effective as the hand sanitizers with the alcohol? Yeah. So, so those are interesting. The, the green, you know, the so-called green sanitizer that basically are not alcohol-based, are not recommended by the CDC or by the FDA. Um, and they haven't really been tested for... Uh, or against um, SARS-CoV-2. And this is why really the FDA and the CDC recommend using alcohol-based sanitizers and do not recommend using these other non-alcohol-based products. 
Uh, now, there are some um, non-alcohol-based products that use benzalkonium chloride, which can be uh, uh, effective against SARS-CoV-2, but again, it's no longer recommended by the CDC because they may be less effective than your alcohol-based products. And so let's talk again about the alcohol-based hand sanitizers. And you mentioned that there could be some potential issues when they're imported from other places, but can hand sanitizers be overused or used improperly, or can there be hand sanitizers that you should just avoid? And what are some of the health concerns when using hand sanitizer this way? Your question here has two sides to it. There's one side where it's the total misuse of these products that can lead to uh, significant problems. So say, for example, someone is drinking the hand sanitizers to get it, to become intoxicated. And of course, or a child that inadvertently drinks the whole content of a large bottle of, uh, of hand sanitizers, they may develop alcohol intoxication. Remember, they contain ethanol or isopropanol. Both are intoxicating substances and can get you drunk, basically, uh, especially on this, depending on the amount that you drink. Of course, just a lick from a bottle by a child is not going to be a problem, but I'm talking more about somebody who's drinking this, either intentionally or unintentionally drinking a significant amount. Now that's one piece of, uh, of, of, uh, of the puzzle here. The second piece of the puzzle is um, uh, due to some inappropriate manufacturing of products. So we've received reports of products that contain very toxic substances in them, like methanol, or uh, another one that comes to my mind is one propanol. Those chemicals were used instead of ethanol or isopropanol or added to the existing ethanol or isopropanol for unknown reasons. We don't know exactly why this happened. Investigations by the FDA are ongoing, as far as I, uh, I know, and no final conclusion has been released yet. But like I said earlier, when the demand increased, there was a, a situation where it was harder to find the ethanol and the azopropanol. So potentially these manufacturers, um, you know, replace that with methanol or one propanol, potentially without knowing the potential damage from these chemicals. And those are really bad. I mean, methanol can cause blindness and death. There were reports of death from this. Of course, not by trivial use. People that were, like I said, drinking it to get intoxicated. They were drinking these products that contain methanol and one propanol. Of course, the FDA is investigating and you can see there's a lot of product recalls on their website for some of these alcohol-based sanitizers that contain undeclared contaminants or inappropriate contaminants or dangerous contaminants or dangerous components uh, in, the, in the sanitizer. So okay, keep that in mind. And more recently, you may have seen some uh, recalls for products that contain small amounts of benzene. Benzene is a carcinogen and some products have contained uh, amounts that are slightly over the uh, acceptable limit um, and have been recalled. You may see some of this stuff on the internet as well as at the, on the FDA website. Right. And I guess where can people go to learn more information about whether the hand sanitizer they're using is safe? Is the FDA the best resource for people listening? I think the FDA would, for first of all, looking at the product, if you can read the label, con, uh, label ingredients uh, on, the, on the product, that's important. Uh, keeping them away from children. Um, so that they're not, uh, you know, attractive. Some of these products have attractive colors or attractive packaging that may drive a child to, to, to take a taste or drink it. 
certainly the FDA has the list of uh, of products that have been recalled, so that would be the most up to date and a good reference to 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 list for our listeners. All right. And that is all the time that we have for today. We want to thank Dr. Kazi for being here to share this really important information about these products and how to keep ourselves safe when using them. So thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening. Tune in next time for another episode of Standard Precautions and Beyond, Conversations in Infection Prevention and Control. Mm-hmm.